0: Clorox knows you want your clothes smelling fresh and clean, but sweat happens. That's why we created Clorox Fabric Sanitizers, to freshen up your clothes between washes, pre-treat extra stinky laundry, and make sure every last odor comes out in the wash. Clorox Fabric Sanitizers take care of all that and eliminate 99% of odor-causing bacteria. Plus, they're bleach-free and safe for all colors and fabrics. When it counts, trust Clorox.
1: We are grateful to have our friends at Sleep Number sponsoring the Thrive Global podcast. The Sleep Number bed adjusts on each side, so it works for both you and your partner. Experience the Sleep Number bed exclusively at one of their 550 stores nationwide. Check them out at sleepnumber.com thrive. Hello and welcome to the Thrive Global podcast on iHeartRadio. My guest today is a venture capitalist, a philanthropist, a tech guru, and a producer. And he's also a TV and film star for 30 years. I'm talking, of course, about the one and only Ashton Kutcher.
0: You're aging me. You said I'm a film star for 30 years. I've only been doing it for 20, and you're trying to turn me into an old man, and I'm very, very young. Even even when you were
1: a little boy, you were acting. Come
0: (laughs) on. This is true. High school plays, junior high plays. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so you were I mean, Okay, uh, so 30 years. I'll 30 give it to years. you. 30 years. If you if you include high school productions.
0: Almost 30 years, 28 years. Yeah. 28 Since years. My that's first pretty play.
1: amazing, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's how I introduced you. But how would you introduce yourself? You're a really hard person to introduce given all the different roles you play.
0: I'm a dad.
1: You're a dad. <laughs> that's
0: how I introduce myself. I I'm, I'm Wyatt and Dimitri's dad. That's my number one gig. Everything else is secondary.
1: And Dimitri, of course, is a great Greek name.
0: Yes, it's a Greek name. It's also, yes, originally a Greek name.
1: So one of the things you've become incredibly identified with beyond your acting for 28 years is your relationship with technology. You've been a very successful tech investor but you've also been one of the pioneers in setting boundaries to your relationship with technology, which is something that we're very interested at Thrive Global. Okay. You know, while we're celebrating technology and all that it's made possible, yeah. how do we set boundaries to it? And how do we deal with the growing addiction to our devices? Um, you've done a lot of things like that, starting with your relationship with your phone. Would you tell us about that?
0: So I look at technology through the lens of it's a tool. I look at it as a tool and I try to be very, very uh, specific relative to that, which is I think it's a tool to create efficiencies in your life and which is all fine and dandy, but it's the end part that's important, which is the in your life piece, which is you have to have a life that you want to create efficiencies for. And I came up when I first started investing, I came up with a thesis for investment. And my thesis for investment is that true luxury is being able to afford to take your time. And this sort of goes to all means, whether it's, you know, uh, it used to be that. It would be silly to take a ride in a horse-drawn carriage, but it's actually quite romantic and quite luxurious nowadays because it's presumed as a luxury to be able to take a horse-drawn carriage somewhere. Now, I wouldn't want to take it across the United States, but through Central Park is wonderful. Beautiful, especially
1: um, with your children.
0: A handwritten letter is actually quite romantic and quite luxurious, but it takes more time and more effort. And and so I, my investment thesis was Technology should actually be able to support you in doing the things that you don't necessarily want to be spending time on and be able to do it more efficiently so that you can then spend your time on the things that you want to spend your time on, uh, thus have the open capacity to luxury. And so with that, you have to actually, from from my perspective, create some limitations to your technology consumption. And I've read a lot of interesting stuff about some of the creators of various technologies not allowing their kids to use them, which I thought was quite interesting. And I, I really I try to limit my technology use to the workplace for the most part. Uh, I try to remember that being in the moment is more valuable than capturing the moment. And I basically when I get home, I just put it away.
1: And so you don't sleep with your phone?
0: I don't want to be available to everyone all the time. This is my journey that I'm on, and I want to choose when I'm available. And I think that the, the do not disturb feature is actually really, really wonderful. Like trying to read a book or something on your phone is really hard because you're constantly being interrupted mm-hmm. by this or that or the other thing, some text message or an email or whatever it is. So I generally leave my phone downstairs. At dinner time, I put my phone away. I maybe I look at it right before I go to bed and then I put it and leave it downstairs I never it never goes to my room with me now if I wake up in the middle of the night sometimes I'll go and I'll get my phone and work so I can go back to sleep but
1: because otherwise you have a harder time going back to sleep
0: yeah if I can't if I'm not sleeping for some reason generally I have something in my head I need to get out mm-hmm. and then I'll use it for that but then I go put it away and go back.
1: So if I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't go immediately back to sleep, I use it as my best meditation time.
2: This Uh, works too.
1: It's kind of amazing because you you don't have a deadline and you can really let yourself go deeper. And inevitably it puts me back to sleep.
0: Yeah, I've tried that. But sometimes if you're not a great meditator, uh, it's hard to clear whatever that thought is. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the easier thing to do is just go write it down. Get it out it. of your head and then go back to sleep, yeah.
1: There's also the old-fashioned pen and paper by your bed. That works, too. <laughs> now, you said something really great about email when you answered the Thrive questionnaire. You said that um, email is everyone else's to-do list for you. Yeah. So how do you deal with email? I just love that. And
0: I, I truly believe it. Like I look at it as what other people want you to do which is generally if you go through your emails and look at it, that it tends to be what it is. So what I try to do is when I, when I wake up in the day, I spend like the first hour of my work not looking at email and actually just writing out what it is that I want to accomplish in a given day. And then before I go through my emails, I'll do all my outgoing, outbound stuff, which is what I want everyone else to do for me. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll knock that stuff out first for like an hour. I'll put a limit on it and then I'll go and get reactive to whatever's
1: going on. That is such an amazing productivity hack. I want everybody to pay attention because I know how inundated we all become with email and tend to prioritize it.
0: Well, I found myself waking up every day with, you know, 60, 70, 100 emails in my inbox just from when I was sleeping. And I would... By the time I got through it, it was already like, you know, seven, eight, the o'clock in the morning. And I'd lost like two hours of my morning to like just responding to things. And it became this impossible hole to get out of because then every response I had had three more responses right. to it. So all I was doing is of other people's work all day long. And I never actually got to the things that I wanted to accomplish in that given day. Other than the meetings that I had to take, which were insanity making it in and of themselves so i've really become diligent about not bothering and and being clear with people that like you may not get a response to me from me on an email and i also like when when we bring a new company into our into our portfolio at sound ventures we send out a mailer to every single founder saying here are the team members if you want x go to this person if you want y go to that person if you want z go to this person If you go to me, the likelihood of me responding within 24 to 48 hours is very, very low. So go to these individuals who are responsible for these things, and it actually creates efficiency inside of our organization.
1: I love that. Also, in the Thrive Questionnaire, we asked you when was the last time you felt burnt out? And that time, you answered today. So is that still the case, or have you recharged?
0: (laughs) Um, I'm pretty recharged right now. I spent the last two months in Atlanta working remotely. Um, So I got to spend like six hours a day with my kids. And then I compressed all my meetings into virtual meetings, which is pretty great because it takes out like the chit chat stuff on either side (laughs) because you just kind of go right to the guts of whatever you're talking about in a virtual meeting. And so I was able to compress my workload down to about five hours a day. So I'm actually pretty retarded. Like hanging out with my kids makes me, gives me energy. So
1: And other than hanging out with your kids, how do you and and Mila like to unplug at home?
0: We have, like, a couple guilty pleasure television shows that we watch. We try not to watch that much TV. Um, uh, But we definitely have, like, our guilty pleasure. Like, we watch The Bachelorette, which I think is fantastic. (laughs) Um, And we laugh. We tend to, like, spend a lot of time just the two of us talking and just hanging out. Or we'll listen to a book together, which is sometimes fun, like, in the car, In the car, we've kind of like, if it's just the two of us, we'll usually put on like a podcast or a book and just listen to it together, which is kind of great because once you share an experience with a book together, like every dinner party you have for like the next like two weeks ends up being a conversation about the nuances, especially if it's a great book. Like we read Sapiens together. We listened Mm -hmm. to it on Audible. And then every dinner conversation we have for like the next two weeks became like talking about the book and ideating relative to the history of humanity and the future of humanity.
1: And you know, his latest book, Homo Deus. It's
0: fantastic.
1: It's incredible. I'm on chapter nine right now. What I love about it is that it's really about this relationship with technology ultimately. Like, do you yeah. believe that AI is going to save us or do you believe AI is going to destroy us if we don't set boundaries?
0: So, I think it'll save us.
1: Even without boundaries?
0: Um, yeah, we'll set boundaries. Like, there'll be natural boundaries that are put on it. But I think, it's, I think it does save us. I mean, I think it, if you start by thinking that in some ways, I mean, it's a very privileged conversation that we get to have. And I think, like, one of your missions at Thrive is to actually, like, take it from being, take sleep and take, like, rest from technology, make it a ubiquitous thing. Yes. But I still feel like it's a very privileged conversation. When you have people that have to work two jobs and then get home from their two jobs and take care of their kids, having conversations about getting enough sleep, it's, they, it, I, I, I would imagine that that person's listening to this going, you don't understand my life.
1: Actually, uh, uh, all the science, and I've talked to a lot of people like that who are struggling to put food on the table, what it shows is that you are more resilient and more effective the harder your life if you take time to recharge. Sure,
0: but when the rent's do, you have to work. Right,
1: but I think what happens often, I mean, I talked to a, a woman, just like you are describing, with two jobs, and at the end of her second job, she said, I go home and this is my time to watch my shows. And she would spend like four hours watching her shows, fall asleep with the TV on, wake up by the TV and that creates this vicious cycle that makes it harder.
0: That may have been that person i I, on the other side, had an Uber driver that fell asleep at a stoplight because they he was working so hard, and I had a conversation with him about it and I know and then I spoke with some folks at Uber about like how do we how do we work on this and make sure that these kinds of things aren't happening? And it's hard when people are in the gig economy working multiple jobs, like how do you actually deal with that and I, and I think My point relative to this is I actually think that technology is going to be there to help a lot of these people. When a lot of this work doesn't necessarily exist because technology has the capacity to do it, what happens is I think we have an economy that's built on happiness and not built on economic incentives. And I think that when the bots actually own the businesses uh, and the bots are in charge of other bots that are running the businesses – I think we get to start to rebuild an economy based on happiness, where a lot of these things that we're talking about come into play.
1: Yeah, it's happiness. It's also health, because the consequences of running on empty are immediately felt on our health. You know, high blood pressure, um, more likely to overeat and get diabetes. So, it's a, it's a really fascinating moment for us to. Look again at this delusion that in order to get stuff done, we have to be always on.
0: So, I had a wake up moment when I was like 29, maybe 30 years old, where I I was having dinner with Eric Schmidt and it was like nine o'clock at night or something. The dinner was wrapping up and he was doing a bunch of texting. I'm like, What are you? I'm like, We're at dinner. Wait. And he's like, Oh, I'm canceling my meetings in the morning. I'm like, What are you? what really it's like nine o'clock he's like well by the time i get home it'll be 10 by the time i get to sleep it'll be ten thirty, and i won't get my eight hours of sleep and he was running google at the time and i was like what wait a second <laughs> you get eight hours of sleep every night he's like yes i operate optimally at eight hours of sleep so i get eight hours every night and i'll cancel my meetings in the morning if i'm not going to get eight hours and i went you can do that <laughs> and run google like i was shocked and it was a wake up for me because i was probably operating on like six hours of sleep a night and there was this sort of stoicism that came with like not sleeping and being tough like my stepdad used to tell me he only slept on Tuesdays and so (laughs) I had this like notion that not sleeping meant that you were more manly and when Eric Schmidt told me this I I sort of had this like wake-up call it was like I wonder how much sleep I function on well and I actually realized it's eight hours and so now I make it a point if I demand that I sleep seven hours and sleep eight if I can. But I also have babies at home, so that doesn't always work. But I have a window for sleeping that is seven hours every night.
1: And you know that you have the science behind you because what all scientists agree is that unless you have a genetic mutation, and about 1.5% of the population does, and they can do great on four or five hours, the rest of us need seven to nine hours. And where we are in that spectrum is individual, but... Same as Eric Schmidt, Jeff Bezos wrote a piece for Thrive Global, and the headline was, Why my getting eight hours of sleep a night is good for Amazon shareholders?
0: I mean, it is. It, and if you're drinking, you might need more than that. So, uh, you know, I, like if I'm drinking, I need eight. If I'm not drinking, I need seven.
1: We are now going to take a quick break to share a sleep tip brought to you by our sponsor, Sleep Number. Because a good sleep routine is the foundation for thriving. Today's sleep tip is to read before bed. But read something not on a screen and something that has nothing to do with work. Read a chapter from a classic novel, a poem, a story in a magazine, or a passage from a history book. Letting ourselves get drawn into a narrative helps us transition from our day-to-day projects and worries. In fact, studies have shown that reading for as few as six minutes releases stress and tension in our bodies. And stay tuned for my quick chat with Pete Bills, the vice president of sleep science and research at Sleep Number, at the end of this interview. We have to find out what you're addicted to. It seems like coffee. Mila, coffee, coffee, Mila, and the kids.
0: It's, yeah, fully addicted. <laughs>
1: Three addictions.
0: Three full, full-blown addiction. I
1: joined you in the coffee addiction.
0: Coffee is a big one. Yeah. That I try to like, I have to like modulate my coffee intake because I get, it gets a little aggressive sometimes.
1: I find that as long as after two, I move to decaf coffee, uh, which I still, because I love the taste more than the caffeine. And um, so that's what works for me. But you can keep going.
0: I probably like two or three times a week, I'll do like a 24-hour fast where I'm just having coffee and water. So I'll, I eat dinner the night before, and then I won't eat breakfast, won't eat lunch, and I'll just have coffee and water until dinner, and then I'll eat dinner like three times a week.
1: Yes, that's actually called intermittent fasting, right? And it's yeah, proven to be very good for your health.
0: Yeah, somebody told me that it was good for you, but I don't yes. really—I haven't really read up on the science of it.
1: But it works for you.
0: Yeah, I heard Cory Booker talking on the Tim Ferriss show about it, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, okay, that's good." So there's actually like theory behind this, but I actually feel a ton better when I'm not eating sometimes.
1: And you—so you came to it on your own.
0: Yeah, I I came to it just because I would I get so excited about work that I forget to eat, and so I'll it's I, I'm not really even making a conscious choice to fast necessarily. I just get so excited about whatever I'm doing that I forget to, to eat. I'm not hungry and I just don't eat. It, life is pretty awesome, and when you just start taking in all the things that life has to offer, like sometimes food becomes secondary to all the other things that you could be doing. And
1: are you are you kind of very Careful about what you feed them. Are you like obsessed parents, making sure it's all healthy and organic?
0: We actually, it's it's almost easier than buying baby food. We just got like one of those like ninja blender things, and you just steam some frozen vegetables because apparently frozen, they pick frozen vegetables when when they're ripe. So frozen vegetables oftentimes is better produce than the stuff that's actually out um, because it's actually picked when it's ripe and then flash frozen. And then when you thought you just you know boil it, steam it, and then put it in the blender, and then away you go. So the kids eat 100 percent organic. We, the food in our house is pretty much 100 percent organic.
1: So organic food and no social media for the kids.
0: The, well, it's two and a half. I don't. No, think no, no. But
1: it. I mean, you' they are not on your social media. Oh, we don't post them on yes, social that's media. That's what I meant. Yes. No, we no, want, I don't expect them to be on Instagram at two and a half. No,
0: I, and I have I have conversations with people about this. I like. I actually think that that should be a choice. Um, We have like a private thing for that where a private social network that we share stuff with our families so the grandparents can see the kids and stuff. But we don't share any photos of our kids publicly because we actually feel like being public is a personal choice. And a long time ago, like seven years ago I was on a panel with Sean Parker and he said, I believe in the future privacy will be the new celebrity and I took that to heart like I my wife and I have chosen a career where we're in the public light but my kids have not and so I think they should have the right to choose that and I actually don't think that they should have images of them as children that are out there that somebody could potentially blackmail them with or do whatever you know it's their private life it's not it's not mine to give away.
1: I actually love that, and it's connected to what we were saying earlier, that the more embedded you are in technology, like Sean Parker was the co-founder of Facebook, or you being an early investor in tech, the more careful you are about allowing technology to invade your life. Sean actually calls it, don't get high on your own supply. There you and, go. and putting your kids on social media <laughs> is a little bit getting high on your own supply.
0: Well, I also, I also just think that your social profile is yours to create for yourself and not somebody else's to create for you. I firmly believe that as society continues to become more transparent and public, you, what you realize is that everybody makes mistakes and everybody screws up and there's and perfect people don't exist. And I think that more people continue to exercise judgment against other people, the more they'll fear judgment of themselves. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they'll become drastically risk-averse people who don't actually know how to go for it and try things because they're so worried about being judged. And I think that that's like the sort of toxic backside of social media.
1: Yes, the other toxic backside is the endless comparisons, comparing somebody else's life to your life.
0: In a sense, it's judgment. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if, if you're looking at somebody else wondering if you're like them or not, you're in a sense judging them and therefore judging yourself.
1: So you've been in the public eye for so many years now, but things have changed now that everybody has a camera and social media has created this giant market and incentive to tear down these walls of privacy. How do you find operating in that world? How has it changed?
0: I share responsibility in the popularization of these networks and, the popular, popularization of this behavior. When I was in my twenties, I did a campaign for Nikon, and I'd never done a commercial campaign for a company before. Never really wanted to do it, but there was a woman in New York that was uh, trying to solve this rare form of child tuberculosis that was using a microscope that was a Nikon microscope, and it was on a, it was she had a grant through Cornell that was given it, and they were about to take the grant away, and. I had a friend that had done me a favor, and I said, hey, if I can ever do you a favor, let me know. And he said, well, this woman's got this microscope. Can you call Nikon and see if they'll give her the microscope? And so I did this campaign for Nikon in exchange for the microscope for this lady who ended up solving this um, rare form of TB. And as a result, I ended up advertising these point-and-shoot cameras, which were like these pocket (laughs) cameras at the day that started to popularize people walking around with a camera in their pocket. And suddenly I realized as I was out at night at clubs and doing whatever I was doing that there were cameras everywhere. And I went, oh, no. (laughs) And then the phone came out, which killed that point-and-shoot industry uh, because the phone came out with a camera on. The first iPhone didn't have a camera, but then eventually they put the camera in there. And I went, wow, it's, like, gone. Privacy is done. And then social networks – made it in a way obligatory for people who wanted to be in various industries to have the social footprint so that they could promote the things that they were building. And as a result of that, away went more privacy as people were opening up the insides of their house and their lives. And I was just as guilty of it as anyone. And at a certain point I realized this doesn't yield positive returns. So I just stopped and I, basically don't, I tend to not post opinions until I've fully thought them through. I tend to not post private photographs. I tend to only post about relative work stuff that I think people will find interesting and or other op-eds or articles or things that other people have posted that I think are interesting and valuable because I think privacy is important and I think that like we're all I think human beings are fragile and I think that uh, our emotional state is fragile and I think that ideas are very fragile and if you launch them out into the cycle of judgment too soon, you get hurt. And I don't like getting hurt.
1: But you do some great posting on politics, like um, after President Trump's first travel ban, you tweeted that your blood is boiling right now. So how's that going?
0: So that was one of the rare exceptions <laughs> to my uh, <laughs> restraint. Um, from my perspective, that travel ban uh, was not appropriate. And having a wife who is a, a came to the United States on refugee status from the Ukraine during the Cold War, um, where she's Jewish and her Jewish people were being oppressed drastically at that point in time in her country. And she came to the United States, and her family's amazing and huge contributors. And what she contributes to our country, I think, is outstanding. And I believe that we are a country of refugees in some way, shape, or form, or people who have come here looking for something better. And I understand the impetus of a travel ban, and I understand that security is paramount. And I understand that protecting the people that are here and protecting the beliefs of the people that are here is very important. But I think that there are better ways to do it. And I think right now this administration is in a very tough position where every day they have to make the better of probably two bad decisions. And I think that they didn't make the better of two bad decisions uh, on that particular case. And I felt that it was necessary to... Vocalize that opinion.
1: So, um, I'd just like to end on something that I just found out about you recently, which is about your relationship with your brother, which I found incredibly moving. And even though I've known you for many years, I didn't know um, about your brother's history and that moment in your life when you almost wanted to kill yourself in order to um, make it possible for him to have a heart transplant. So since there are probably others like me who don't know about that story, would you tell us a little more about it and how your brother is doing now?
0: Yeah. Uh, my brother is doing great now. Um, he has two sons and is just uh, an inspiring person. I had the great fortune to be born a twin where you don't realize that you, you never have like a personal identity that is self without having it be shared. So from everything in my entire life was shared from my birthdays to holidays, to my bedroom, to everything, my clothes, What it was ours. And so I grew up in a, with the essence of ours for everything. And my brother was born with a mild form of cerebral palsy. So I always had this reflection of, um, this other person that was also part of me that had to struggle in different ways to achieve the same things I was trying to, to achieve. And when we were, I think 12, he had a cardiomyopathy and which was, is, was a virus that attacked his heart and basically went from being a normal kid to being a kid that was in the hospital, having to have a heart transplant within days. And, um, yeah like as a kid, I was like What what can he have my heart like is it possible? and then luckily, you got a heart transplant and was the youngest person ever at the time to be put on an artificial heart, which was pretty crazy and uh he's doing great, he's incredible, but he's he's like a he's a constant litmus for me that gives me a different level of understanding, i think, of the way things can be and the way things could be and it makes me appreciate life every day in a different way because i've known since i was a kid that it can be taken away for no reason at all to just just because of the circumstances of life and so i think it like he's a huge motivator for me and one of my best friends and
1: Ashton thank you so much for being a huge motivator for many of us and for being a real pioneer in speaking about these things and bringing compassion to what you're doing in your public life, and also boundaries to technology and teaching us all about that. Thank you.
0: Cheers. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Ashton Kutcher, for being our guest and everybody for listening. Now we're going to take a minute to talk with Pete Bills, the Vice President of Sleep Science and Research at Sleep Number, about the link between sleep and performance and the science that connects them. But grazing is a habit that people often think leads to eating less. And most people don't get the connection it has to poor sleep. So how does grazing affect our diet and our sleep?
2: Well, ironically, uh, grazing a lot of times is the result of poor sleep. The hormones that um, regulate how hungry we are and how satisfied we are with a meal don't work really well when you're tired. So you end up grazing. You end up eating a little bit more than you should. The tired brain is always hungry and never satisfied with a meal. So people start to graze. Two things are wrong with that. It's really hard to count calories when you're grazing all day. And the second thing is you end up grazing later in the night when you shouldn't. Um, And this is where people then abandon their, their healthy eating habits and eat sugary, starchy, high-carbohydrate foods, which can interfere with sleep as well. And if you eat a big meal too close to bedtime, uh, you could end up with um, acid reflux or heartburn, which really disrupts sleep. So, again, balanced meal. uh, Make sure that you pay attention to what you eat and and when you eat, and you'll you'll do okay.
1: Be sure to subscribe to the Thrive Global podcast with iHeartRadio on your favorite podcast app. And stay tuned to thriveglobal.com and iHeartRadio for updates on upcoming episodes. And in the meantime, go to thriveglobal.com for tips to start thriving today. We are grateful to have our friends at Sleep Number sponsoring the Thrive Global podcast. The Sleep Number bed adjusts on each side, so it works for both you and your partner. Experience the Sleep Number bed exclusively at one of their 550 stores nationwide. Check them out at slipnumber.com slash
2: drive. At CarMax, we're pretty flexible with how you can buy a car. If you'd rather scroll through 50,000 cars instead of walking the lot, go for it. If you want to see how a car smells on the lot before you buy it, by all means. Hey, we all have our things. Want the whole thing to come to you without ever leaving home? Buy online. Compare how the speakers sound when playing your favorite mix? Yep, visit our lot. And if you want to browse a little on the lot and in select markets have it delivered at home, we're certainly not stopping you. CarMax, the way it should be. What's up? It's Sierra, new member and ambassador for WW, Weight Watchers Reimagined. Since joining, I feel healthier and more confident than ever. The new MyWW Plus, our most holistic program ever, gives you more of what you need to lose weight like tools to help boost your mindset, get you moving, and plan meals based on what you have on hand. Plus, over 300 zero-point foods you don't have to track. The new MyWW Plus. More holistic, more personalized, more weight loss. Join today with a limited-time offer at WW.com.